Hi, I'm Amelia Bordeaux. I am the host of Clarity with Diamond Standard, and this is a podcast that discusses investment themes that impact the diamond commodity and um, wider precious metals market. I'm happy to be joined today by Paul Zimniski, who is a leading independent uh, analyst, and his company is Paul Zimniski Diamond Analytics. Paul, welcome. We're so happy to have you here today. Hi, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm wearing all my, I have all my diamonds on just to speak with you today. So I'm very, very excited. I got ready for this. <laughs> Looks good. Um, I wanted to talk first about the pandemic and um, global luxury demand during the pandemic, um, because I want to give the audience a sense of how strong that was and how, what impact it, it had on the diamond industry and then what the impact is today right now. It was, well, um, I mean, it was a, a, a generational event. Uh, I mean, global diamond jewelry demand was probably up, you know, anywhere from 25 to 40, 50%, depending on, you know, what market or, or, you know, what category we're talking about. It was pretty much across the board. It was such a strong uh, period of demand that most of the supply chain, you know, was able to exhaust inventories that were built up probably over the, the previous decade. Um, I mean, very un unusual event. I mean, the diamond, you know, jewelry industry has probably been growing at, you know, anywhere from, um, you know, a low to, to mid single digit percentage rate if we're looking at compound annual growth rate over the, probably the last, you know, 25 years. And again, we were up, you know, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50%, you know, year over year if we're looking at 2021. Um, and I would say, you know, since then, 2022 was, a relatively flat year, which was a, a very good year coming off of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the trade was able to pass along uh, inflation adjustments. Um, so I think if you look at top line sales, uh, they were relatively in line, maybe down small uh, compared to 2021. And then, you know, expectations for 2023 was that there would be, you know, a notable softening, um, you know, that, you know, sales would be down, you know, a, a mid single digit percentage. But what we've seen so far in Q1, uh, is that, uh, you know, you know, trends from, from last year are continuing, meaning that, you know, sales uh, remain in line uh, with 2022. So we're kind of holding that high watermark achieved in 2021. Um, and again, I mean, it's a nuanced industry, so it depends on what, you know, categories we're talking about. But uh, by and large, I, I think um, so far, you know, the industry has surprised uh, to the upside uh, year to date 2023. Yeah, there's a lot of concern, rightfully so. I mean, when I kind of read trade publications about the strength or maybe the coming weakness, perhaps anticipated of the U.S. consumer, who is the largest consumer globally of um, diamonds. But so far, I mean, employment is quite strong still in the United States. We're recording this today in uh, May 22nd of 2023, and we still have strong employment so far. And the luxury goods sector, um, you know, that's not representative of all consumers, certainly, but um, we just had results for like LVMH and Richemont and their jewelry sales were, were very strong as well. So what do you think about the U.S. consumer perhaps ahead? Yeah, so um, so LVMH and Richemont, they're the two largest uh, luxury conglomerates in the world. So LVMH notably owns uh, Tiffany. Bulgari, Richmond is the parent of uh, Cartier and, and Van Cleef, you know, so these are the, you know, notable, uh, you know, hydrollers in the world. Um, I mean, they just continue to, 
to, to crush it. I mean, you know, both these companies just had record uh, Q1s, uh, double digit sales growth. Um, I mean, there definitely has, you know, I would say, you know, in, in the, you know, you know, recent decades, there's been a clear bifurcation in the industry where you have the generic market and then you have the, the branded market and, um, you know, the top brands just continue to, to outperform. Um, branded diamond jewelry um, continues to be extremely uh, popular in, in, in China. Uh, the U.S. market, you know, continues to remain strong. The European market strong. Japan, you know, has had a really, a really nice comeback. Um, so that, that branded segment continues to, to notably outperform. Um, and it kind of goes back to, I mean, we just can't forget diamonds are, a, it's a luxury product. It's an emotional purchase. People buy it because they like the way it makes them feel. And this is an industry where you, you can, you know, throw money at, at, at the problem with marketing dollars. And if you do that right, you know, consistent, you know, over a consistent enough period of time, um, and, and execute, you know, marketing and branding strategies, right. Um, you know, the, the, the best cases you end up like LVMH and, and, and Richmond and it takes years and years and years and lots of persistence. But, um, you know, these companies have done, you know, so much right. They're both very, very well-run companies and it's a proxy for the larger luxury market and for, for the, for the jewelry market. But again, um, you know, this is primarily, um, you know, the high, the high driller, uh, you know, branded market, um, which, you know, has dislocated to, you know, to an extent from the, the larger jewelry market, um, you know, in recent decades, but it still shows that, you know, there's, there's definitely still strong, uh, you know, demand and, and uh, consumers uh, are, are continuing to buy, you know, high-end luxury items, high-end material items. Um, and we just kind of continue to see that play out with those two names in particular. So that's, that's pretty optimistic. Right. Um, I know Tiffany's just reopened its flagship store in uh, Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan, after a big, I guess, renovation, multi-year renovation. I have not been to it yet, but I've, I've gone by it. Have you been in by any chance? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was years in the making, and I think they started it before uh, LVMH acquired it. And when LVMH acquired it, they kind of wanted to, to redo it their way, and I think that's why there was the delay, and then you had the pandemic delays. Um, but, I mean, that's probably the most famous uh, jewelry store in the world. Um, that one store generates like a, a notable percentage of Tiffany sales. I think it's, I don't know if it's one, two, three percent, but it's like, it, it, you know, an, an actual note, one store generates a notable amount of sales for that, you know, that very large global company. Um, so, but, but it, it gets back to what I was, you know, talking about before where, I mean, marketing does matter. And I think the diamond industry does great when, you know, there, there, there's proper marketing spend and execution. Um, you know, it, this kind of, you know, goes back to the, you know, the history of this industry when you had, you know, the De Beers monopoly and, you know, De Beers was, you know, actively, um, executing that diamond is forever campaign, which wasn't just a marketing campaign. I mean, it was, it, it kind of went, you know, deep into the supply chain where they would actually go and they would train, you know, front end sales associates and independent jewelers on how mm -hmm. to sell diamonds. And then when the monopoly was dismantled, you know, and, you know, between, you know, 2000 and 2005, um, the industry lost its way a little bit. You know, De Beers basically was saying we aren't going to spend all this marketing uh, money, you know, to to, to, to the, basically to benefit our, uh, you know, of our competitors as, as well. We're just going to, you know, start marketing our own, you know, diamond lines. And that's what Forever Mark is and, and De Beers uh, Trollers and that sort of thing. But um, after about a 10-year lapse of generic marketing, uh, the industry basically came together and said, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, losing sight of, of, 
what makes you know this industry work best and that's having a kind of a, a collective campaign and that's when the industry reinitiated generic marketing through an, an, an entity that's now called the natural diamond council so the okay. industry is kind of getting back on on track with that but um marketing is, is key here it's going to remain key here it's a it's a luxury product you have to to generate that desire and, and, and that uh you know emotional demand and when the industry does that well it, it it does great and when it doesn't do that well it um you know it lags behind yeah, no, for sure. Um, the Natural Diamond Council, and maybe we can link it in the show notes as well, just came out with a recently a report. I know you kind of contributed data to that. It looked like you were cited in it um, about facts on, on the diamond industry, um, which is a very interesting and useful report that they had out. Um, yeah, for sure. So I wanted to talk a little bit about also supply of diamonds, just to give our audience, um, you know, a heads up on the dwindling, I guess, supply that that's ahead, maybe mines coming offline. And the industry believes, is that correct, that we've already seen peak like diamond supply? Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily look at it as, as that. I mean, we clearly, um, you know, made, made a mistake, you know, with that, you know, in terms of oil and, and peak oil and what that meant. That was kind of the big story, you know, when I was starting my career on Wall Street. Um, the, the way to look at this is, um, it's 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 supply for commodities in general is, is cyclical and it's tied to prices. So as prices go up, more you know deposits that previously were uneconomic become economic. Right. And I remember you know starting my career, the portfolio manager that I worked for, he was a geologist, and he said, you know, most people have gold in, in their backyards, and and it's true, but it's in such a small quantity, it would never ever ever make sense, you know, to actually to to, to dig up your your you know your lawn and and try to process the gold. But the point is, there is a, you know, theoretically, there is a, a point where the price of gold would get high enough, and it would actually make sense to dig up, you know, those, those, those tiny, you know, my, you know, you know, particles of gold in your lawn. So, I mean, that's like an exaggerated example. But the point being is, you know, we do have, um, you know, there are undeveloped diamond deposits in the world, um, that if the price got high enough, you would see them go into production. But um, there aren't, enough of them, you know, you know, right now at current prices to put supply back to what it was, you know, say in 2017, you know, global diamond production was say between 150 and 155 million carats. Um, we hit like a, you know, kind of a near term low in 2020, you know, production dropped, you know, you know, close to 110 million carats, which was the lowest output since the, the 1990s. And now we're going to probably be in a range I'm forecasting of 115 to 125 million carats throughout at least the end of the decade. And, and I'm pretty confident with that projection because it takes so long to put a new mine into production. So if, you know, diamond prices theoretically went up 50% this year, we wouldn't see new supply come online in six months. It would probably still be anywhere from two to five years away, given the permitting that's required, given that it you know takes multiple years to, to build these mines. Um, right. the, you know, diamond mining in particular is a, you know, relatively complex from just a scale standpoint, not necessarily from a processing standpoint, but from a scale standpoint, you can't just mine a gold vein, uh, you know, like you would with precious metals, you need to um, typically do, you know, large bulk mining uh, campaigns, um, given the, 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 the low grade of diamonds, because natural diamonds are, are, are pretty rare. Um, right. But the point being is, you know, you know, for the foreseeable future, I don't think we're going to see any significant increase. Uh, in natural diamond supply, I think that's actually probably you know you know bullish for the fundamentals of the industry if if they get the demand side uh, right, and and um, you know again at, at the end of the day, I mean, 
when we're talking about engagement ring size diamonds and larger, they're extremely rare. Um, there, there's, there's, you know, probably 50 commercial scale uh, economic deposits uh, that are currently in operation today. And the industry is kind of, you know, disproportionate uh, in that there's probably 10 diamond mines in the world that are extremely uh, economic, that are extremely profitable, that are extremely valuable. And then you kind of have everything else. And those, you know, 10, you know, super economic mines are, are, are owned by the beers and, and the Russians. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, when you look at supply from that standpoint, I mean, the beer's top mine, uh, Zhuaneng and Botswana produces, you know, I, I think it's, you know, 15% of, of total global diamond supply. That's just one mine. Right. Um, so it just kind of shows how, how, you know, you know, disproportionate the supply is in the industry. Um, and right. And I mean, and, and diamonds are, they, they are pretty rare. Yeah, I loved, there was a graphic in that Natural Diamond Council report, um, which is really, I thought was stunning that they mentioned that um, annually all the one carat diamonds mined in the world would fill an exercise ball and all the five plus diamond carats mined annually in the world would fill only a basketball. So I thought just, I don't know, that was a very clear graphic. Yeah, it puts it in perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's, they're, 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 they're pretty rare. Yeah. Um, maybe you, you mentioned it just now, the concentration of diamonds between Al Rosa, which is a state-owned um, Russian diamond company, right. and also De Beers, um, who mines it mainly in Botswana. But can you talk a little bit about the, the monopoly of De Beers and it being dismantled, you mentioned in 2000 to 2005, because we do get this question a lot Um Yes. I mean, just for, for clarity, I mean, De Beers no longer holds a, you know, the quote unquote proverbial stockpile. There was antitrust uh, legislation passed in the U.S. and Europe, you know, a couple of decades back. And it, it you know, it, it definitely changed the, you know, the, the, the way that the industry fundamentally works. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, De Beers won't hold an inventory and, in, you know, it's daytimes like, you know, the, the pandemic where there was really no market to sell into. They have a balance sheet where, you know, the, the parent company is Anglo-American. It's a large diversified mining company. You know, they have a balance sheet where they could say, you know, we just aren't going to sell into it in, into a, a frozen market. We'll just, you know, wait a few months and when demand returns, we'll, we'll sell it what we believe is a fair market price. So you will see some of that. So it's not like they hold zero inventory, but they don't hold a strategic, you know, stockpile like you read about in, in your college, you know, economics textbook. Yeah, interesting. And I guess it's been interesting all um, this weekend with the G7. It's no mystery or, you know, there's been many press reports, especially in the FT, um, that have said, you know, the G7 wants to further restrict um, or trace uh, diamonds from Russia, but it's just a pretty difficult thing to do. And it didn't seem like much came out of the G7 this weekend in terms of, you know, a concrete example of how they were going to sanction and trace the Russian diamonds. But I, I would imagine that any further sanctions or any ability to trace and block those Russian diamonds would just further restrict um, supply to Western countries, right? Yeah, so it is, it is notable because Russia produces, you know, say approximately a third of, uh, you know, the, the diamonds in the world. I mean, it's, it's the, the largest, you know, producer from a volume standpoint, at least. And then if we look at, you know, the, say that the quote unquote Western consumer market, which we're going to include, you know, Japan and Australia, you know, we're, we're looking at almost, you know, three quarters of global diamond jewelry demand. The U.S. is half of global diamond jewelry demand alone. Um, so, you know, 
you're going to continue to see more and more restrictions on, on Russian goods flowing to Western consumer markets. Um, and, you know, there should be a net net short, you know, a shortage of, uh, you know, non-Russian goods because of that. Um, you know, that said, it's not like the industry is just going to lose a third of supply. I mean, that, you know, Russian supply is going to end up, you know, being routed to, um, you know, consumer markets in, um, you know, China, India, the Middle East. Right. Um, but given how large of a you know, disproportionate consumer the, the, the Western you know, consumer market is, it's, it's going to, I think it will be felt. And at this point, it's just kind of coming up with a way to, you know, implement uh, you know, these the sanctions on, on, a, on a wider level and, and be able to effectively enforce. It. And I think that's kind of the challenge. So if you look at, you know, what's hap- you know, happening at the G7, I think they're, they're taking this seriously. They definitely, um, you know, want to implement uh, some sort of plan here. It's just coming up with a way to do it mm-hmm. uh, effectively. And I think uh, it's going to happen. It's just a, qu- a question of, you know, how long is it going to take, uh, right. you know, t- to come to a conclusion? Yeah, um, but, I mean, but I would I would note that I mean, you see how the sanctions the U.S. implemented sanctions on Russian diamonds in uh, February, March, April of last year. But even you know, possibly you know, most notably, is you have almost all of the major Western jewelers at this point in time have self-sanctioned. So the technicality is, you could you know, in, in America, you could still import a Russian diamond as long as it was cut and polished outside of Russia and sold outside of Russia. Um, but you look at like the LVMHs and the Richmonts and the Signet Rollers, which is the parent of, of K and Zale. They, you know, shortly after, uh, you know, February 2022, they came out and said, we are not going to buy any diamonds. We're not going to source any diamonds of Russian origin whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's actually had a bigger impact on the market than the, than the sanctions themselves. So I think, you know, when we're looking at what's going on in the G7, I think it's just going to kind of ramp up kind of what we've already seen play out over the last year and a half. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, so I want to turn now to a, a more controversial topic, which is um, lab-grown versus natural diamonds, of course. And your thoughts on maybe how this could evolve. I mean, there's so many things going on from the terminology of lab-grown. Should they be called lab-grown? Should they be called synthetic? Um, what should they be called kind of the marketing around the lab-grown diamonds. Um, so much to talk about. I mean, the price decline in lab-grown diamonds. Um, what's your first thought when when you speak about lab-grown diamonds? Yeah, I mean, it's a fun thing to, to cover. It really is. I mean, I think this will end up in um, economics textbooks in the future. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty fun to watch it play out. Uh, I have been covering this very closely for, I, I mean, almost 10 years now. Um, so, you know, when you, when you see it kind of covered in mainstream media and they're talking about it as is like this new product, that's going to change everything. It's like, to me, it's, it's kind of well, old, old news. Here? Like when was the first, you said 10 years ago was the first lab grown diamonds? No, I mean, so they've been, we've been able to produce synthetic diamonds since like the 1950s, but up until, wow. you know, up until, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was almost exclusively produced for industrial applications. So if you buy... Okay. You go to Home Depot and buy a you know a, a tile saw blade that has diamond. It's it's you know most likely going to be synthetically produced diamond that was uh, made in China. Um, right. I mean to put this in context, so we are talking about you know natural diamond production say is going to be 120 million carats this year. The Chinese are going to produce 10 to 12 billion carats of synthetic diamond for industrial application. So that just kind of gives you an idea of the the capacity of um, you know, 
manufactured man-made diamond. It's a, it's a manufactured product. We can produce, you know, as much as we want. Mm-hmm. Now with the emergence of, of, you know, man-made diamond for use in jewelry, this really started to take off um, probably within the last, you know, five to, to seven years. But those product, even the jewelry product has been available, you know, for probably 20 years at this point. It just got, you know, more recently to the point where they could produce it at low enough price points where it was attractive enough to consumers. Because in 2015, you could have bought a, a, you know, a piece of lab diamond jewelry, but it was probably only 10% less than an equivalent natural diamond. So consumers just really weren't that interested. Today, you can buy it at 90% less. So it's, it's definitely making, you know, diamonds much more affordable to a much larger part of the population. I think what we're going to see is companies like Pandora, which is the, the largest fashion jewelry company in the world. They're known for the, you know, the charm bracelets. Um, they recently launched, a, you know, a, a lab diamond jewelry line. I think it's a perfect fit for a company like that. And, and they said their goal is to, quote unquote, democratize diamonds. And I think it's a viable strategy. And I think they're going to do well. I think companies like Swarovski are going to do well. I think they're positioned right. And there's going to be some companies that, you know, build a, you know, a, a brand or do something unique around you know a man-made diamond jewelry line they can get a premium for it but i think by and large you know you know there's just there are companies that are selling you know a a generic man-made diamond and they're basically just trying to ride on the the coattails of the natural diamond industry and i think that you know worked for you know you know this kind of intermediate period of time but i think it's going to get old and it's that the price of lab diamonds have have driven uh dropped so dramatically Mm -hmm. um over the last 10 years that I think the price point gets so different from that of a natural diamond uh, that consumers are just going to ultimately perceive it as, as something different. I think a consumer that's going into a jeweler with an $8,000 budget to buy a, you know, one or 1.2 carat um, diamond engagement ring. I just don't think that consumer is going to walk out of that store with an $800 lab diamond. I just think it's just, it's the price point so different. I think, yeah. um, you know, the, what it kind of re- represents is so different. And again, this isn't a practical purchase. I mean, if we're talking about diamonds for use in industrial application, I think you just want the, the lowest priced product that can, um, you know, perform the, the, the best on a, on a relative basis. But with jewelry, it's not about that. It's about, you know, the emotional purchase. It's, it's about how it makes you feel. It, it, it's unique. It's a luxury item. It's yeah. how people treat themselves and they give it as a meaningful gift. So I, I think this is maybe why even I, an heirloom, maybe even an heirloom. Of course, yeah. And now, I, you know, that right. they want the whole value and emotional value and monetary value to both, you know. And that's why I wouldn't bet against the natural diamond industry. Now, this is all assuming that we can continue to distinguish between natural and, and man-made diamond indefinitely. I mean, I, I've had, I have a podcast of my own. If anybody's interested, I've had multiple gemologists that are the best in the world at what they do. Yeah, it's and great. Them, fascinating guests. I listen yeah. To and I asked them, you know, that question, I mean, is there ever going to be a point in time where we can't distinguish? And most of them say, no, it's like, it's an arms race. You know, the right. producers are going to come up with ways to try to make it more difficult to distinguish from natural. Um, you know, you're going to always have those, you know, uh, you know, unscrupulous, unscrupulous individuals that are trying to pass up, you know, man-made as a natural, mm-hmm. but then you have, you know, the natural diamond industry has a lot, you know, at stake to make sure that doesn't happen. And, you know, there's right. a lot of money being spent, you know, by, the gem the gem labs to kind of you know continue to improve you know their technology so they can kind of keep up with the producers so i mean this has been going on for for years now and i think what we've seen is that the the gem labs you know certainly have 
you know, been able to, to kind of keep up and, and when you say gym lab, do you mean like the graders like IGI or GIA? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Why do they even grade the lab grown diamonds? I mean, I know they can be distinguished from each other in terms of carrot and because they have different price points, but I guess at some point, the way we, at some point there's like a supply issue in terms of, um, I would think that lab grown producers would get together. I mean, this is like the economist in me talking, <laughs> we get together and, I mean, there's so many of them popping up and the price is falling that why do they keep opening, you know, like new suppliers? It seems like it doesn't make sense almost. They're just driving the price down. Yeah, it's, it's, I think we're in a bubble territory. I mean, Lab Diamond production for jewelry, I mean, it's been doubling every two years. Um, it's recently exploded in, in India. The government's subsidizing it. They want, you know, they see it as, a, as an export industry. Um, you know that 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 they can continue to grow at a, at a notable scale, but you get to the point where the supply is just you know, you know, growing at such a rapid pace. I just I don't see how demand's going to keep up with it. I think a lot of the these you know you know man made diamonds are going to end up on you know Amazon and you know mm-hmm. Alibaba and, and China at, at you know pretty highly discounted prices. Which again, I think it's kind of the natural progression of a manufactured product. Um, right. But I think there's going to, you know, certainly be tears on, on the, the lab grown, you know, you know, that diamond side of the business. Um, people that got in too late or aren't doing anything that's kind of unique or special. And right. then you have companies that, you know, are, are in this for the long game, and they're man-made diamond companies, and they're they're, they're you know taking an ethical approach to, to marketing. They aren't misleading consumers, and they're trying to build a brand and saying, you know, I'm going to produce a diamond made with renewable energy. It's going to be, you know, you know, produced, you know, in America. And I'm going to offer a product for the customer that wants that. And I think they're going to do okay. But right. there's a lot of companies that are just trying to, you know, produce as many as they can, kind of, you know, gr- you know, kind of, you know, you know, use, you know, greenwashing, you know, around the marketing for the product. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, try, try to take advantage, um, you know, of, of this you know, intermediate phase where there is a lot of buzz around it and consumers are probably overpaying for the product, but right. it's a new product. And it's a lack of understanding. I, like when I speak to people about lab grown diamonds, they don't really understand it. And I think, I mean, they're all over Instagram, for instance, like all the ads and, you know, some, I think distinguish it just in my opinion, some, you know, it's not even clear to me if this is like a natural company or a lab grown company. So it's interesting just when you see that initially. Right. Instagram. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately gonna, you know, gonna probably be what leads to the downfall. Um, but there's that risk that you know it's just it, it, that there could be negative, you know, publicity for the overall diamond industry, and people just give up and they say, "I don't want any diamond because I don't trust you guys," yeah. and and that's a real risk too. And that's I think why there's a lot at stake here. And uh, I, I, I think um, you know I, I think the industry will prevail. This is the, if we look at the natural diamond industry, it's one of the most resilient industries I've, I've ever you know seen. Um, they've historically done a lot right. Um, and I think there's a reason that, you know, diamonds have remained as relevant, you know, as they have, um, while continuing to, to bring in new markets. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, you know, you know, Chinese consumers really didn't buy diamonds. They didn't give diamond engagement rings. Um, now, you know, diamonds are quite ubiquitous in, in China. So, um, yeah. the industry has, has a, a pretty impressive track record. Um, and I wouldn't bet, you know, bet against it this time. Yeah, I, we were speaking, we've we've spoken before and we, we were speaking one time and I thought something that you said was so true that you never hear about um, 
someone robbing like a lab grown <laughs> diamonds like right. gym lab or something because yeah they know that the value obviously isn't there yeah and you I, don't see lab diamond uh heists or thefts that just you don't ever see that headline so i think that kind of kind of speaks for itself yeah it's so interesting and then i do like your point which is very uh interesting too about eventually consumers you know will know the difference between lab or natural just because of the, the price points and then question right. why would I buy something at such a low, you know, maybe they won't assign economic value to lab grown when the price drops so much. So they can distinguish it themselves. And that's really interesting right. as well. Yeah. Well, is there, is there anything else you want to mention to us that I, that I didn't ask you that you see as relevant, you know, for this year, any diamond industry themes or. Yeah, I think we covered the, the big things. I mean, I'm just, you know, as an analyst, I'm watching, you know, the reopening of China. That's going to continue to be a big demand catalyst this year. You know, the whole lab diamond thing, we'll keep an eye on, on prices and see if we see that market continue to to bifurcate. And then, uh, you know, obviously the, the the situation with the sanctions on, on Russian diamonds, that's going to be a big, uh, you know, supply catalyst as that continues to play out. So, you know, and then you have the, the macroeconomic backdrop. I'm kind of in the camp that we're going to see more of a you know, a soft landing than a hard landing. Um, so far, mm-hmm. I think I've, I've been right on that, but there's a lot of moving parts and a lot uh, of potential catalysts that could change that, you know, very quickly. So we'll, we'll kind of keep an eye on the macro backdrop. But so far, it seems like the U.S. market, you know, has been pretty resilient, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a, a volatile, uh, a volatile time. So we'll see. It is a very interesting macro time and um, coming to the diamond industry, it's, it's so interesting and so many moving parts, but uh, we'll see how it all evolves and maybe have you back on. Thank you so much for your time today, Paul. We all appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Materials presented are not intended to be a recommendation, solicitation, or offer to buy or sell any securities, financial instruments, investments, or to participate in any particular investment strategy. The content and opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a guarantee of future results, performance, or outcomes. Before acting on any information or content presented herein, you should consult with a qualified financial professional, tax advisor, or legal counsel to determine the suitability, risks, and potential rewards of any investment or financial strategy for your individual circumstances, financial situation, and risk tolerance.